0: Father, would you come now, and would you give life to the Word of God? May may your Holy Spirit do heart surgery amongst us, or maybe some of us need to have a rekindled appreciation for the gospel, that it would set us on fire and, and cause us to proclaiming it. So whatever we need, Lord, would you come and would you do that? In the hearts of your children today, may the word of God come alive, may it be clearly communicated, may we understand your intention when it was first written, and may we learn to apply it to our lives today, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of uh, 2 Timothy was written at a time of great persecution. It is believed by many that the Emperor Nero in 64 AD actually set fire to the city of Rome, and then he needed a scapegoat. He needed someone to blame for that. And so he blamed the Christians. And so at about 64 AD, it became dangerous to publicly proclaim that you were a Christian. In fact, if you were a Christian, you were somehow now an enemy of the state. And if you propagated that religion, you could be executed for a capital crime. And of course, the people that were most liable to the fire at that particular time would be the apostles, because they were the most public, the most visible. And so it wasn't too long before the apostle Paul was arrested a second time and imprisoned a second time in Rome. The first time, it was a lot easier on him. Because he was under house arrest, and he was in his own rented quarters, his friends could come to him, and he could teach the gospel, and he was happy as a clam, I think, just teaching the gospel to the guards and all the people that came. This time it's different. He's all alone in some dungeon in Rome, except for Luke. Luke was with him, but everybody else had deserted him. and it. It appears that he had solicited help from some of his brethren in Asia to come and testify on his behalf, but it had become so dangerous to do that that they were withdrawing and deserting and turning away from Paul in his hour of greatest need. And he couldn't call on Timothy and Titus to testify on his behalf because they were fellow accomplices in the same crime. And so Paul was left alone. And so he defended himself at this preliminary trial. He boldly preached the gospel... And he did it so persuasively and so effectively, showing that it was no seditious sect. You know, the Christianity was not a seditious, divisive thing within the Roman Empire. That they couldn't accuse him of a capital crime, and so they dismissed the case until they'd done further research. But Paul has this knowing feeling in the gut of his stomach that it's just going to be a matter of uh, a few days or weeks, and he's going to be executed. In fact, in this letter, he'll say, uh, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come so he knows he's going to die soon and the reason why he's writing this letter to Timothy is because he's going to pass away but he doesn't want the gospel to stop being propagated throughout the Roman empire and so he's he's writing to urge Timothy to stand strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and Paul had spent his life preaching the gospel protecting the gospel and passing on the gospel And so now he's taking the baton and he's handing it to Timothy and he says, now it's your time to run, buddy. (laughs) I can't run anymore. It's your time to run the race. And so Paul's giving, he's entrusting to Timothy this precious gospel that he has been entrusted with and he says, now you run with it and you pass it on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now Timothy was naturally a timid kind of a guy. That's why he has to tell him in chapter 1, God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but a power and love and discipline. So rely upon the Spirit of God to give you the power and the love and the discipline you need to boldly proclaim this gospel, even though it may cost you your life, as it's going to cost me my life. So that's the setting for this book. Now, in verses 8 through 11, what we have is Paul telling Timothy that we have a gospel that's worth suffering for. Notice here in... In verse 8, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And then if you go to verse 10, at the very end, he says, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So he begins this statement with a reference to the gospel. He ends it with a reference to the gospel. So the gospel is like two different bookends, and in between these two bookends, he explains the gospel. You see, for Paul, I, I believe this. With Paul, he can't just mention the gospel and go on as though he had, not, had said nothing, because the gospel was his life and soul. And so he mentions that, but he just can't stop there. He's got to chase a little rabbit trail for a little while. He has to digress because he loves the truth of the gospel. So we get to appreciate today the fact that he took a little rabbit trail and opened up this gospel for us. Now notice with me that this gospel is a gospel of salvation. Because he says, Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us. The gospel is a gospel that saves. Oftentimes we hear people say, well, you just need the full gospel. You need to have the gospel that heals and the gospel that gets people rich and the gospel that enables you to speak in tongues. Folks, the biblical gospel is a gospel of salvation. That's what it's all about. The gospel is God's good news of a rescue operation, okay? It's glad tidings that our God in heaven has sent His only begotten Son to live, to die, and to be raised from the dead so that sinners, perishing, poor, miserable, wretched, condemned sinners, could have everlasting life, and God Himself. So it's a, mess- it's a good news of the message of salvation. In fact, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul calls it the gospel of your salvation. In 1 Timothy 1.11, he says, uh, The glorious gospel of the blessed God... I like that title. (laughs) The glorious gospel of our happy God. Or here in uh, 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 1, verse 14, he says, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now what was the treasure entrusted to Timothy? It was the gospel. God entrusted the treasure of the gospel to Paul. Paul is entrusting it to Timothy because he's going to die soon. And in chapter 2, Paul's going to tell Timothy, now you entrust it to faithful men who can teach others also. There needs to be this succession of faithful men in every generation who are entrusted with the gospel and pass it on. And folks, that means you and me. Are you a faithful man or a faithful woman? Have you been entrusted with this gospel? Then it's our job to pass it on to the next generation. That's what discipleship is all about. That's what we heard about earlier today in our meeting. That we need to be involved in pouring our lives into other people and passing this gospel on, and then they are entrusted to pass it on to faithful men and women. So this is a gospel of salvation. Timothy tells or Paul tells Timothy in chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. He says, do not be ashamed. Now, if you go further in the letter, in verse 12, Paul says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Or if you go to verse 16, he says, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Do you see what he's doing? Paul points to his own example. I'm not ashamed. Look at Onesiphorus. Look at his example. He was not ashamed. Now, Timothy, you don't be ashamed either. It's going to mean suffering for you. It's going to mean hardship for you. But don't be ashamed of this gospel. And then he says, and let me tell you why you don't need to be ashamed of it. And that's verses 9 and 10. So, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. What do we call the testimony of our Lord? The testimony of Jesus Christ? It's just a shorthand for the gospel, isn't it? Don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy. Just like Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and also don't be ashamed of the testimony of me, his prisoner. Now isn't that interesting that Paul doesn't look at himself as being a prisoner of Nero? And he also doesn't look at himself as being a prisoner of the state. He's a prisoner of Jesus. So, what does that mean? I am Jesus' prisoner here in Rome. Well, it means that he believes that Jesus is sovereign over his circumstances, that he's in prison, but it's not as though this has somehow um, escaped the notice of God, and that, wow, God's thinking, well, What's Paul doing in prison? How did that happen? I've got to fix this somehow. No, this was part of God's plan for Paul. Paul knows that. Paul knows that a sparrow can't fall to the ground without God knowing about that. That all of our hairs are numbered. That every detail in life is under the sovereign providence of God. And so he's a prisoner, but he's not pulling his hair out about it. He knows that God has a purpose and a plan for Paul in this particular circumstance. It's part of God's plan. He says, But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You're going to suffer, Timothy. But do it according to the power of God. God's power can enable you to bear up under suffering when you can't do that in and of yourself. Now notice in verse 7, he's already said, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power. Timothy, you have the Holy Spirit within you, and the Holy Spirit is a spirit of power. So you can rely upon that spirit to enable you to suffer well, not to deny Christ, but to uphold the name of Jesus, even to your dying breath. So do it. Suffer with me, but do it according to the power of God. And then he comes to the nuts and bolts here in verses 9 and 10 of what the gospel is all about. It's a gospel of salvation. And we're going to find him talking here about the application of salvation, the basis for salvation, the sovereignty of salvation, the accomplishment of salvation, and then the results of salvation. It's all in verses 9 and 10. So first of all, the application of salvation. He says, who has saved us and called us? So my question to you this morning is, how does anybody ever get saved? We read our Bibles and we read things like the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. And we read our Bible and we read things like no man can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. Can't come. Can't understand. In John chapter 3 he says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil and they won't come to the light. So, if we won't come to the light, we won't come to Jesus, we don't understand the things of the Spirit, if we're spiritually dead, according to Ephesians 2, how is anybody ever going to get saved? Here's the answer He called us. That's the answer. We are saved because our gracious God has called us. Now, what is this calling that Paul's talking about? Well, it's not simply a mere invitation. Sometimes we make a mistake by thinking, oh, he's just inviting men to come to the gospel to be saved. What would happen if God merely invited the human race to Christ? No one's going to come. <laughs> it's got to be more powerful than that. In fact, when you read through the letters of the New Testament, you will find this word call or calling appear over and over. And in every single instance in the epistles, it refers not simply to a general invitation, but an effectual summons it's an irresistible summons that god almighty issues towards those he intends to save so this is a call that results in the possession of salvation peter says that he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light he didn't just invite us out of darkness He called us out, and He brought us into His marvelous light. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, He called us into fellowship with His Son. See, it results in something saving. He called us to be His own sons and daughters. So what did He have to do in order for that call to actually take, take root and produce a person who possesses salvation? He had to grant a new nature to spiritually dead sinners. We call that regeneration or the new birth. He had to give a new heart. If you are a saved person this morning, never, never take that lightly, as though it's some light little thing. You see, God has not done this for everybody. Look around, look at your neighbors. Look at your friends. Look at the people you work with. Look at your relatives. How many of them have a new heart given to them by God where they love Him? Where He's their life? Few. Jesus said, few are those who find the way to eternal life. Many go down the broad road leading to destruction. If you have been called, that is, that is nothing to take lightly. We ought to be on our faces every day of our life thanking God. Thank you for calling me into fellowship with Jesus, your son. Notice what kind of calling it is. He says he has called us with a what? A holy calling. And what does that tell you? It tells you that if you've been called, you've been called to a life of holiness. God doesn't call anybody and let them live a life of sin. God doesn't call anybody who thinks, well, I've accepted Jesus as Savior, but I'll get around maybe someday to accepting Him as Lord. If He calls you, He's your Lord, because you receive Him for who He is, and He is the Lord. He he is life itself. He's master, king, treasure, satisfier. So, when God calls a man, He calls a man to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that is a work that God will do in everybody that He calls. Not only does He regenerate you, but He begins to sanctify you. In fact, He is so absolutely committed to this that the Bible says He's predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. It's set in stone. That's how sure and certain it is that everyone that God has called will become like Jesus. Now, it often happens a lot slower than we would like. Have you ever felt that way? Man, this has taken so long. Why do I grow so slow, Lord? But even though it's slow to us, the Lord sees the progress. And over our entire life, we'll look back and we'll see how He has changed this and changed that and caused Jesus to grow in our esteem. So He calls us. He calls us with a holy calling. That's how the salvation of our souls is applied to us. It's applied by the Spirit of God bringing us into fellowship with Jesus through this effectual, irresistible call of God. Now, let's take a look secondly at the basis of salvation. Upon what basis does God save sinners? Well, he goes on to say, it was not according to our works. That's what the basis was not. I wish the people that we talk to could understand this, but it seems like maybe it's because we're we're raised in a world and in a culture where everything is given to you upon rewards for what you've done well. Like if you work really hard on your job, you get a merit raise. So you're rewarded for how hard you work. And that's just drummed into our thinking and it's part of our psyche. So we think if I just work hard enough, then God will give me salvation. It'll be a reward for my performance. And you know, you you talk to people and inevitably they think I'm going to heaven because I'm a good guy. (laughs) I'm just a good person. But the Bible is so clear. We are not saved according to our works. Titus 3 says He saved us. Not according to our works, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Or Paul in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. Paul says in Romans 3.19, or 3.20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So the Bible is extremely clear. In fact, my favorite Christian of all time, apart from um, the apostles and all of those guys, George Whitfield, he used to say, Saved by works? Saved by works? I would sooner climb to the moon on a rope of sand than try to save myself by works. Because he knew how futile it was. So the basis of salvation can never be anything that you and I do. Because it will never be good enough. Now, if we were to be saved by our works, what kind of a standard would God give? How good would those works have to be? Perfect. Right? Because God is morally perfect. He's going to demand moral perfection. Even if you could start right now, and for the rest of your life, be perfect, it still wouldn't happen, because you've got all that sin that you've uh, accumulated over all the years until right now. So it would have to be all perfect works, and an abundance of perfect works, and the only one who's ever lived a life like that is Jesus. His whole life was... One long, continuous, perfect work that God accepts. He says, well, he can say to his son, well done, my son. Behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So if you want to be saved, get out of yourself before God and get into Jesus. And if he sees you in his son, you're accepted. Because his works apply to your life. So the basis of salvation according to scripture is not according to our works. Well, then what is it? but according to His own, and we're going to skip the word purpose for now, but according to His own grace. If you're new to Christianity, learn this one really well. Salvation is by grace. Now what is grace? The best way I can define grace is God's free favor. And that word free is really important because it tells you that we cannot earn it. It's free. We cannot deserve it. It's free. We cannot do anything to obtain it of our own because this is free. It's as though God looks down from heaven and he says, Brian, I love you. And I know you can't earn salvation. I know you can't deserve it. And you can't merit it. But I'm just going to give it to you for free. There's nothing, Brian, that you can ever do to to earn what I freely give to you. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's by grace, the free favor of God, the undeserved kindness of God to hell-deserving sinners. That's what grace is. So the basis of salvation, the grace of God. In fact, Paul says over in Romans 11, he says, If it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You see, grace and works are like oil and water. You can't mix them. They always separate, right? And and God's grace can never be mixed with our works. It's got to be pure grace or no grace at all. So, the application of salvation? The mighty, wonderful call of God... The basis of salvation, the free grace of God. Now let's look at the sovereignty, the sovereignty of salvation. Let's go back to the word purpose. It's not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now whose purpose was this? What does the text say? His own purpose. Paul is careful to tell us it wasn't our own purpose. Sometimes people say, well, I purposed to become a Christian. Well, before you ever purposed to become a Christian, God purposed to save you. That's why you purposed to become a Christian. It was God's own purpose. Now, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about God's purpose. Maybe that will help us to understand what that word really means. Let's go over to Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Is there any doubt at all that God's purpose will be established? None whatsoever. He says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. See, God's good pleasure is just a synonym for God's purpose. And he's saying here, it will be established. Why? Because I know the end from the beginning. I know everything that's going to happen and I've known it from the beginning. Whenever that was. <laughs> whenever time began, God knew what was going to take place and he said, yes, I agree. I ordain that this be the future of the human race. Or Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Now here we're talking about Jesus, and it's specifically his sufferings and his crucifixion. And the early church got together and they prayed. And they had very orthodox, biblically sound prayers, didn't they? <laughs> they prayed, Lord, would you do... No, they're, not. they're saying, these people that were in, in Jerusalem, that put to death the Son of God, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they did whatever you already had predestined to occur. And he links the word predestined with the word purpose so the purpose of God is linked with God's predestining purpose okay Romans 8 28 and 29 and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called there's our word called again but what are we called according to his purpose well what is God's purpose let's keep reading the next verse for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. What is God's purpose for the Christian? That He be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. How sure is that to happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. God is already predestined for that to happen. And if you don't know what the word predestined means, just take the two parts of it. Predestined. Pre, what does that mean? Before. Destin or destination. It's where I'm headed. God has already determined beforehand where we're going to end up. That's the meaning of the word predestination. Uh, Romans 9, verses 11 to 13. Here's another use of the word purpose. And it's talking here about the twins of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first. Jacob was born just a few minutes later. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated." So let's take a look at the word purpose here. The twins were not yet born yet. They hadn't done anything good or bad, but God made a decision. The older twin was going to serve the younger twin. Now why did he make that decision? It was His purpose according to His choice, according to this verse. So God's purpose is linked with His predestined outcome. It's also linked with His choice. Okay, let's go further. Ephesians 1.11 We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Now how many things does God work after the counsel of His will? According to this verse, all things all things. And he tells us in the first part of that verse that his purpose for us is linked with his predestination of us. We keep saying that, don't we? This is about the third scripture that we've seen that link. And then Hebrews 6.17 In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. So here we learn that God's purpose is not just predestined, it's not just linked with his choice, but it's unchangeable. It's an eternal, sovereign, unchanging purpose. In other words, you or I can't change it. You see, God's the one that made this universe, and God is the one who's decided that He's going to run the universe. It's not up to you and I to run it. It's up to us to bow to Him and acknowledge that He's running this universe, and we just get in step with Him. And God made some decisions before the world began of how things were going to turn out, according to these passages. So, the sovereignty of salvation is seen in the fact that we were saved by His own purpose, and that purpose, according to verse 9 and 10, was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. If you take a river and take it all the way back to its source, you'll eventually trace it back to a spring out of a mountain somewhere, won't you? We call that the fountainhead of this stream or this creek. God's sovereignty, if you were to trace your salvation all the way back to where it first originated, you would trace it back to God's sovereign purpose for you in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And the words from all eternity literally mean From before time's eternal. That's literally what the Greek says here. Before time's eternal. In other other words, before God even made time, this purpose was set. God had already chosen you in Christ. Now notice that He did choose you in Christ Jesus. So what does that tell us? You're all waiting, aren't you? That's right. The choice to save you was made in connection with a union that he was going to bring about between you and Christ. We can't be saved outside of Christ. So he purposed to put you into Christ, because that's the only way anybody can ever be saved. He purposed to join you to Christ, to unite you to Christ. And now we have all things that flow from the Father through his Son, because we're, we're under the spout where the water flows out. We're, under, we're in Jesus, where all the blessings come. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, where? In Christ Jesus. That's where they all are. And that's why everybody has got to get into Christ. And if you don't get into Christ, there are no spiritual blessings. If you're in Him, you have them all. So here's the sovereignty of salvation. It it took place before time's eternal. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 1.4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Or Second 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. From the beginning. Or here's one I wanted to read to you from Revelation 13.8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. When were people's names written down in the book of life? According to this verse. From the foundation of the world. It's not like they're getting added along the way. You know, Sometimes you hear preachers say, just believe in Jesus and he'll write your name in the Lamb's book of life. Well, according to Revelation 13.8, he already wrote it a long, long time ago. And it's there. So this is the sovereignty of our salvation, which teaches us basically this. We have God to thank for our salvation in every detail. And we can take no credit to ourselves because we had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Before we existed, God knew us, God chose us, and God determined that He was going to bestow the riches of His grace upon us. Well, let's keep working through this. The accomplishment of salvation, verse 10. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. God's purpose and grace towards us was once in the mind of God from all eternity, but now it has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. When Jesus was incarnate, when He came in the flesh, when He appeared, He brought, He revealed these purposes of God's grace towards His people. And he did that initially through his teaching ministry. He would say things to his disciples like, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's revealing God's grace. Or he would say something like, The Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to to serve and to lay down his life a ransom for many. He's revealing the purposes of God's grace. Or he might say something like, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And him who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Or, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's talking about God's grace and he's revealing the grace of God. He's a drawing God. He's a God that will not cast you out. He's a God who will come in the person of the Son and lay down his life a ransom for many and seek and to save that which is lost. But not only did Jesus reveal God's grace in his teaching ministry, but this verse tells us that it was brought to light through our Savior... Christ Jesus. And that word Savior clues us in that it's not just His life, it's also His death. Because we have no Savior apart from a blood sacrifice to propitiate or to turn away the wrath of God. So here Jesus Christ is referenced as Savior, telling us that our salvation was accomplished not merely in His life, but in His death and resurrection. Except for the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Last Thursday night, John was leading a study. And in that study, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we we went back in our mind to all of those Old Testament sacrifices and all the lambs who had been brought to the priests and the priests had slit their throat and the blood splattered everywhere. And that was just a picture to look forward to the coming of the Lamb of God the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ, who would accomplish salvation. See, it's applied by the call of God, but it's accomplished by the work of Jesus at the cross. It's done. That's why he could say it's finished. For all God's people, it's secured. Because everything necessary for us to have it, including that all-powerful ministry of the Spirit to call us, all that was purchased at the cross... So, if you're a Christian, it's because Jesus accomplished it for you. It's because the Spirit called you. It's because the Father planned for you to have that salvation. And then he goes on to tell us the results of salvation who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel? He brought life and immortality to light. And he did it through the gospel. See, what he's saying is that in the Old Testament times, people's idea of life and immortality was really fuzzy. They didn't have the light that we do in New Testament times. Where did someone go after they die? Well, it wasn't that clear until the coming of Jesus. When we have the New Testament now, it shows this this blazing light on the pages of the New Testament to tell us exactly what happens when a Christian dies for to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But until this time, it was like a portrait hid in a dark closet. And you, you open that closet door and you can't really see much. But if you take that portrait out and put it under the lamp and look at it, you can see every detail. And the New Testament shines light on immortality and light and life, eternal life. So what are the results of salvation? Number one, death is abolished. And what kind of death is he talking about? Yeah, it can't be physical death, can it? Because that hasn't been abolished. You and I are all going to die, whether we're saved or not. can't be talking about physical death. It's got to be talking about spiritual and eternal death. For God's people, that's abolished. Isn't that good news? It's abolished. It's removed. It's gone. In Revelation chapter 2, this is a verse that I was just learning this last week. I love this one. He who has an ears, oh no, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And why is that such good news? What's this second death all about? Well, in Revelation chapter 20, he says, "Death and Hades shall be thrown into the lake of fire." This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the second death is the lake of fire. It's eternal hell. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by hell. Shall not be hurt by the second death. Because their name is written in the book of life and their name has been written there from the foundation of the world. If anyone's name was not found written in that book, he's cast into the lake of fire, the second death. But Jesus, for his people, abolished death. We don't have to be afraid of the wrath of God. Now, if you're not a Christian, you ought to be afraid of that wrath. Jesus taught us to be afraid of that. He said, fear him who after he is killed is able to cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's just a sad situation that almost nobody does. It used to be, hundreds of years ago here in America, that even if you weren't saved, you, it's likely you would be a God-fearer. That's gone. That's out the window. Nobody fears God. But, oh, they're going to fear Him one day. Unless they bow their knee to Jesus now. The results of salvation, death is abolished, and life and immortality are brought to light through the gospel. Now let's apply this. Verse 11. Paul says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Why was Paul appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher? For what? What does the text say? For the gospel. For the gospel. Paul's whole life. He could sum up his life. I live for this gospel. To live as Christ. The gospel is just about Jesus. like you want to... You want a nickname for the gospel? It's Jesus Christ. God's saving purpose in Christ. Paul says, I was appointed a preacher of this gospel. I was appointed an apostle, a sent one, to preach this gospel and to plant churches. And I was appointed a teacher. The church needs preachers. The church needs teachers. The church needs church planters. But all of that is done in reference to the gospel. You see, the gospel isn't something that you believe to get into the kingdom, and then you forget all about it because you go on to deeper and better and more wonderful things. The gospel is everything in the Christian life. It's A to Z, <laughs> it's a whole alphabet. We learn to live by the gospel as well as be saved by the gospel. And so Paul says this was his whole life, and he wasn't ashamed of it, he was bold with it. Because he knew that there was no other way for poor perishing sinners to ever be saved from the wrath of God except for the message of this gospel. And so that's why he's telling Timothy all of this. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And the power of God was manifested in the calling of the Holy Spirit. It was manifested that it was by grace, not works. That power of God was manifested in the fact that God planned it from eternity. And then Jesus accomplished it through His bearing our sins on the cross. Suffer with me. And God's word to us, number one, we may face suffering for Christ. It'd probably be good for the church if we faced a little bit of suffering. In countries around the world where they do suffer for Christ, the church is pure. People don't attach themselves to that church unless they mean business with God. Non-believers don't just float into the church and act like they're real Christians. They've got a much purer assembly, more regenerate people. So it could be very good for us, and it could happen in the coming years here in America where there is a real persecution. I mean, the way our culture is headed, I would not doubt that that's a very real possibility in the next several years. If that happens, and to the extent it happens even now, if you're bold about your faith, you're probably going to face some hardship, you're going to face some suffering, you're going to face some persecution for that. Rejoice. That's what Jesus taught us to do. When we suffer for Christ, He said, Rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. You want to have a great reward in heaven? Don't back down. Don't be ashamed. Don't turn back like the people in Asia did when Paul needed them at his dying hour. Stand firm for this gospel. And at the very least, that means that we ought to be those who are willing to proclaim it, doesn't it? Paul says he lived for this gospel. Timothy, you live for that gospel. Timothy's finding faithful men and he wants to entrust this gospel to them. And the thing's happening today. Are we faithful people that we can be entrusted to pass on this gospel? Or are we going to be ashamed when we get some flack for it? Or people call us names for it? Or call us Jesus freaks? Or you moron, you idiot, what are you talking about? Or are we going to stand up for Jesus? The book of Hebrews says, let us bear his reproach and go outside the camp. It means let's associate with Jesus no matter if anybody does. Let's bear his reproach. He bore reproach when he was on this earth and his people are going to bear reproach. Secondly, this text teaches us that if you're saved, give God glory for that. Because you had nothing to do with it. You, were, you are a blessed recipient of God's sovereign grace. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. Glory. Paul can say, what do we have that we haven't received? And if we've received it, why would we go around boasting about it? It is insanity for us to go around boasting that, yeah, I made my decision for Christ. Old Charlie over there, he didn't do it. He didn't have enough sense. But yeah, I, I did it. And I'm in. As though it had something to do with me. To the extent that you do that, you're ripping the glory away from Jesus. And he doesn't like that. Do you know he is... Devised salvation so that we can't boast. <laughs> That's why it's not according to our works, Ephesians says, so nobody could boast. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be anybody there saying, buddy, you're down in hell, Anna, because of something you didn't do, and I'm up here in heaven because of something I did. None of that. We are going to be on our face, taking off whatever crown we have, and casting it at the feet of Jesus, and saying, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive riches and glory and honor and blessing and power and dominion. And you know what? It's never going to stop. And it's not going to become boring. Can you fathom that? (laughs) Because it's going to get better and better and better and we are going to take delight. And and like what we did this morning, I felt a real sense of the spirit of worship this morning. It's going to be a hundred times, a thousand times better than that in heaven. And it's going to be an ongoing eternal worship session. And I can't wait. What about you? See, nobody looks forward to that unless God has regenerated them. Unless God has called them. But if God's called you, you say, yeah, I love to worship my Savior. That's because He's given you a new heart. So, if you are saved today, give God the glory. If you're saved today, make up your mind that you're going to be willing to bear hardship and suffering and not be ashamed of this gospel, and to proclaim this gospel. Let me just put a pitch in to the entire church. We have a wonderful opportunity this coming weekend. I want to encourage every single one of you to come out for this. Some folks are going to be standing up and preaching, and it's going to be a lot easier on them if you come out and just cheer them on. Form a circle. Form a congregation. And maybe get up enough nerve to hand out a track to somebody walking by. Let's do this as a church, not as three or four people. Let's, I mean, we don't have that many as it stands. So let's get all of us together and let's do it as a church. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, would you be glorified today in your word? Seal to our hearts the truth that our salvation is of grace and not of debt, not of works. Lord God, we thank you for the free favor that we have in Jesus Christ today. We praise and magnify your great and holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.